0: Well, turn in your Bible to John chapter 1, and we're just going to start by reading this really central text on the humanity of Christ, John chapter 1, and we'll read together the first 17, 18 verses. John 1. And I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In the beginning, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man having been sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been sent ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained him. The name of the city is Katakoy. Katakoy is on the east bank of the Bosphorus River opposite modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. It's really now just a, a district of Istanbul. It's just across the river. It's known, in fact, as Istanbul's Asian side. Because from Katakoy, you would proceed east toward Asia while on the western side of Istanbul on the other side of the Bosphorus River you would proceed west into eastern Europe and beyond so it was really a central point in that area of the world Katakoy enjoys amazing weather tremendous scenery of both the Bosphorus River and the Sea of Mamara which takes you to the Aegean Sea now you're between Turkey and Greece and then you go out all the way to the Mediterranean it's, it's a beautiful beautiful area Catechoy is historic in architecture and it's modern in its lively commerce and culture. Catechoy Market is world famous because it boasts not only food from, of every imaginable kind, but countless antique shops, second-hand bookstores, entire streets just with art shops, with original paintings, ceramics, sculptures. Why is Catechoy such a cultural center? Well, it literally is where East meets West. And in ancient times, Katakoi was actually considered a great place to have a meeting if people from the East wanted to meet with people from the West. In fact, if we rewound history about 16 centuries to October 8th through November 1st of the year 451 AD, there was a meeting of many people from both East and West in Katakoi. It was known back then as Chalcedon. Across the river from what is now what was then known as Constantinople. That time of the year, the views were peaceful and scenic. You could see out into the bay. You could see the entire Sea of Mamara. The weather was amazing, high in the mid-60s and 70s, lows in the mid-50s. And in this October of 451, five to 600 leaders of the Christian church met together for three and a half weeks, holding long meetings and conferences at the Church of St. Euphemia. And the topic of the conference, a desperate bid to settle for the church, a solidified orthodox position on this topic, the topic of the conference concerned the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ as both God and man, and how this mysterious doctrine was to be properly understood, and particularly at stake at the Council of Chalcedon, was the nature of the humanity of Christ and how this interacted with his deity, with his divinity, The battle over the humanity of Christ had reached this apex, and Leo I, the influential bishop of Rome, he called this council together to settle the question once and for all. Well, this evening, I am tasked with opening our Steadfast Bible Conference by setting the stage for our time together all day tomorrow and closing out Sunday morning. The title of my message this evening is, The Word Became Flesh, Understanding the Humanity of Christ. And what I'd like to do this evening is simply place the cornerstone, kind of the cornerstone of the structure of the humanity of Christ, and we'll build the rest of the weekend on this cornerstone. From ancient times, the cornerstone was the first stone laid for a structure. All the other stones were using the the cornerstone as a reference guide. It marked the exact location. It marked the orientation of the structure. The setting of the cornerstone was like a modern-day ribbon-cutting ceremony. It was a dedication. It was a big deal. It marked the beginning of building something beautiful, and it, it really set the stage for the entire building. Well, tonight we're going to place this cornerstone of the structure of the humanity of Christ together. The cornerstone has six sides, and so that's how we'll organize our thoughts. Six sides of the cornerstone of the humanity of Christ I'm going to give them to you up front and then you can note them as we go. We're going to look at the story side. We're going to look at the substance side and I'll repeat these for you. We're going to look at the scriptural side. We're going to look at the sinless side, the salvation side, and we'll finish up this evening looking at the supernatural side. So the story side, the substance side, the scriptural side, the sinless side, the salvation side, and the supernatural side. We're going to be doing a broad view of a bunch of different scriptures, so you probably don't want to try to keep up. Maybe just note the references if you're a note-taker. The first side of the cornerstone of the humanity of Christ we'll call the story side. And we're going to camp out here for a bit because the story side takes some time. Beginning in the 19th century... Cornerstones were often hollowed out and they would become a a time capsule of sorts to put items in there to tell people in the future what was going on during the time of the building of that structure. It told the story and that's where we're going to begin the story of the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. What is it that got the leaders of the Christian church to the Council of Chalcedon? What was brewing that would cause five to six hundred church leaders to abandon their normal ministry duties for three weeks and four days, not including the days and days of travel time that it took to arrive at Chalcedon? What was going on? The very earliest Christians believed with no problem at all that Christ is fully God and fully man, fully human, that he is the son of God who is sinless in nature and worthy of our worship. But it wasn't until controversy over the nature of christ began to become part of the the collective discussion of various churches that christians began to wrestle with the fact that this is a mind-blowing concept that the second person of the trinity became a man without losing anything of his divine nature within the lifetime of the apostles Some were already having a hard time reconciling the divinity of Christ with the humanity of Christ. In fact, the Apostle John warned in 2 John 1.7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. It was already happening. Confusion was already beginning to be a problem. Was Jesus only partially divine? Was he only partially human? Was Jesus even human at all? And once differing opinions of Christ's humanity began to be discussed in earnest, the battle was on. And a theological war over the humanity of Christ began that would rage for centuries. Now, what did this war look like? Well, on the one hand, some sacrificed the deity of Christ to try to explain his nature. For example, the Ebionites... The Ebionites were loyal to the monotheism of the Old Testament, which led to their, their camp, essentially denying the deity of Christ altogether, that Jesus was merely a man and he was qualified at his, at his baptism to be the Messiah, as the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Or we have the dynamic monarchians, the dynamic monarchians said that Jesus, the man was different than the Word of God we just read about in John chapter one. There's two different entities. It was these groups and many others like them that led to worthy efforts to then defend the deity of Christ. But on the other hand, other groups sacrificed the humanity of Christ to try to explain his nature. For example, the Gnostics, they were influenced by Greek philosophy much more than by the scriptures, and they believed that the matter and the physical things of the world are inherently evil and in total opposition to those things that are spiritual. So why does that matter for Christ? Well, they rejected the idea of an incarnation, a manifestation of God in visible form. Why? Because that involves contact with the physical and the spiritual. And according to Gnostics, you can't have that. Or you have the Modalist monarchians. The Modalists believed that there were no distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that the one God took up different forms or modes, as it were, and that Christ on earth was just a manifestation of God. Still other groups attempting to defend the deity of Christ while allowing for his humanity presented Christ as subordinate to God the Father, not just in a functional sense as one member of the Trinity submitting to an equally God other member of the Trinity, but that Christ was in essence, in substance, less than fully God. The anti-Gnostics. Many of the Alexandrian fathers and even well-known theologians such as Tertullian and Origen, they wrestled with this issue and and many believe they went too far in seeing Christ as God yet somehow in essence slightly subordinate to the Father. But the key word there is that they wrestled with it. The next evolution of problems came as one group jumped on this and they took from wrestling with this issue to solidifying all-out heresy. Because they defined... Christ as a superhuman man who was the first being that God created. That Christ was a created being. A man who was God-like, but not God. And so they denied the deity of Christ altogether. Those were the Arians. And today they have a new manifestation. We call them Jehovah's Witnesses. It's the same theology. But the defender of the true faith, Athanasius, he took up the cause against Arianism. And he asserted from Scripture that the Son of God was consubstantial, meaning of the same substance, the same essence as the Father. And the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. confirmed this position, and Arius and his followers were denounced. They were said to represent an unorthodox and heretical position. So at least by this point, the church as a whole kind of got it that the simultaneous full deity and simultaneous full humanity of Christ was not going to be easily explained. So at this juncture in history, people started trying to explain it. You had the Apollinarians, led by Apollinaris, and they accepted the Greek idea that humanity is made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit, and that the Son of God took the place of the spirit in the man, since the spirit was regarded as the place where sin originates. There's no scripture to show that, that's just their theory. Or you had the Eutychians, led by Eutychus, they felt that the human nature of Christ was absorbed by the divine nature, or that the two were fused into a single new nature, a kind of a a third entity almost. Or you had the Nestorians, led by Nestorius, that said that Christ was completely and only a man who enjoyed a moral indwelling of God, in the same way that christians do now and so with all this controversy and they they were without the most useful theological debate tool known to man twitter and so they couldn't do anything without that without that legitimate church leaders they needed to gather and establish the scriptural orthodox position and so, Leo I, the influential bishop of Rome, he called this council together to settle the question once and for all. And in fact, Leo presented a paper simply called Tome, or Leo's Tome, outlining what was to be known as the middle position. The middle position said that Christ has two natures without confusion, without severance, and without division. And so, the Tome was to be studied and debated by the hundreds of pastors, and they overwhelmingly affirmed Leo's position concerning the interaction of Christ as God with Christ as man. And Chalcedonian Christology became the orthodox doctrine of the Christian church. You would think that that would stop the problem. But even after the Council of Chalcedon, more new versions of trying to explain Christ arose, all threatening again the orthodox view of the unity of Christ as one person with two natures. The Senate of Frankfurt in 794 again agreed with the Orthodox view from the Council of Chalcedon. They once again reasserted the Chalcedonian view. Enter now the Middle Ages. Middle Ages didn't add much at all to the true church's understanding of much of anything because the church at that point wasn't trying to understand much. Roman Catholicism came into full power and control and it viewed itself as the only true church on earth. And they developed its own system of works-based salvation in which justification is achieved rather than received from God. And so the Middle Ages didn't help much with this doctrine. The Great Reformation of the 16th century then brought about further refinements. There was a variety of of opposing views that were debated significantly. But eventually the Reformers landed on a generally agreed-upon position, which is actually very well represented in the Second Helvetic Confession of 1566, That says, quote, we acknowledge, therefore, that there be in one and the same Jesus, our Lord, two natures, the divine and human nature. And we say that they are so conjoined or united that they are not swallowed up or confounded or mingled together, but rather united or joined together in one person. Finally, a thousand years of confusion, and now we can rest, right? Enter the age of reason, in the late 17th century, early and mid 19th centuries, or 18th century rather, and everything gets blown apart. It seems like every time the church settles something, that some new enemy comes. Well, with the rise of the age of reason from the end of the 18th century, everything now, everything, theology, science, you name it, was filtered through one thought. And that is that if mankind can't understand it, it must not be true the age of reason. And nothing now was going to be accepted purely on the authority of Scripture. And because of this presupposition, more and more with the rise of liberal theology, the emphasis was on lowering the view of Christ and elevating the view of man. The starting point for the study of Jesus began with Jesus the man, and the conclusion was Jesus was a man with some divine attributes. And so the fight was on again for the doctrine of the deity of Christ, because liberal theology loved the idea of Jesus only as a man. Why did they love that? Because it made it possible theologically for us to be equal to Jesus. And so in the well-fought battle for the deity of Christ over the past 150 years or so, once again, the humanity of Christ has been de-emphasized with the average Christian having nothing more than a foggy grasp of the importance and the implications of Christ's humanity. What's the one time of the year we consider his humanity? It's a Christmas. And that's really the average Christian's understanding. Oh, but wait, there's more. Then we had the advent of the seeker-sensitive movement, which began in earnest in the mid-1970s. Now Jesus the man was then and is in that movement continuing to be highly emphasized But not in the sense of a robust, systematic, and biblical theology of the humanity of Christ, but in the sense of preaching a message about Jesus that, hey, Jesus is a guy just like you, just like me. And he wants to come alongside you and and Jesus wants to be your buddy and he wants to put his arm around you. And that's the whole reason Jesus exists, is to help make your life better and to get you a better job and to help you be happier and to fix your marriage and your finances. He is your buddy. He is your co-pilot. You've heard all of the horrible metaphors. And so ironically, by emphasizing the humanity of Christ, they sort of forgot one little fact. He is also God and he is also worthy of being worshipped. So what do we do with all of this? This is the story of the struggle for the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. And so our duty is simply to elevate not what we want Jesus to be, and not some particular emphasis about Christ, but simply to elevate the truth of what Scripture says about the Savior, God who is a man. I've alluded to some of these truths already, but let's try to wrap our arms around the basic understanding of the humanity of Christ. The, the second side of the cornerstone of the humanity of Christ we'll call the substance side. The substance side. And that brings us to that most foundational of doctrines around the humanity of Christ, what theologians have dubbed the hypostatic union of Christ. The hypostatic union, it's, it's a word based on a Greek word that speaks of nature or essence or foundation what is the substance, what is the essence of Christ as both God and man? Well, the weather in Chalcedon is so nice that we could travel back there. And if we went back again to that, those series of meetings as they overlooked the Sea of Mamara in October of 451, these 600 or so church leaders finished their conference at the beginning of November and they emerged from their long meetings with a statement has become known as the Chalcedonian Creed. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin begotten before all ages of the father according to the Godhead and in these latter days for us and for our salvation born of the Virgin Mary the mother of God according to the manhood one and the same Christ son Lord only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures inconfusedly unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son, and only begotten God the word the Lord Jesus Christ as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the holy fathers has handed down to us what a glorious statement and that's been the benchmark for the doctrine of the humanity of Christ ever since that's the standard just to summarize their statement I guess their motto was why use five words when ten thousand will do but to summarize their statement, their conclusion from Scripture was that Christ Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature without confusion or change or division of any kind, both occurring in one person. In fact, there are numerous Scriptures which present both natures of Christ in one person, always presenting the natures as unified and united. In Romans 1, 3 and 4, Jesus he is according to the flesh, the Son of David, and according to the spirit, the Son of God. Galatians four verse four, God sent forth his Son. That's the preexistence and eternal nature of his nature as God, and he was born of a woman, a human birth just like ours. Tomorrow we'll spend significant time looking at Philippians chapter two, but Philippians 2 presents Jesus as equal to God, yet found in appearance as a man. Two natures, one person. In the text we opened with this evening, John 1.14, and the word became flesh. And we saw in John 1.1 that the Word is who? He is God. And the results of the union of these two natures, the results are nothing short of astounding. Theologians have rightly defined or identified a threefold communication that happens as a result of the hypostatic union. One is sometimes called the communication of properties. The communication of properties says that the one person can be described as almighty and all-knowing and all-powerful and the man of sorrows and the one subject to human pain. Then there's the communication of operation. The communication of operation says that the redemptive work of Christ required both the divine and the human, and yet all was accomplished in one singular person. And then there is the communication of glory. The communication of glory says that the human nature of Christ was adorned with many and various gifts of glory and grace. That his human nature was elevated above all all others. He possessed all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He used them perfectly in his intellect, perfectly in his will, perfectly in his power. And he was impeccable. That glorious theological word that means that he was unable to be negatively swayed or corrupted in any way. So let's boil down the orthodox position concerning the human nature of Christ. Jesus is one person with two natures, divine and human. The second person of the Trinity didn't merely adopt a human person. He took upon himself human nature. His human nature is personal and real, though not ever independent of his deity, His human nature has everything that makes a human human, no incompleteness, no imperfection. The second person of the Trinity had a divine nature from eternity past. He assumed a human nature and now possesses both and will always possess both. In other words, forever and ever, Jesus will be fully God and fully man. But How did the church leaders at Chalcedon come to this conclusion? Did they just argue a lot until they came up with this statement because they were tired and wanted to go home? No, they had a biblical basis. It took them three weeks and four days of study and deliberation. So our third side of the cornerstone of the humanity of Christ we'll call the scriptural side. What the scriptural side tells us what was the evidence presented by Leo I of Rome that was analyzed and scrutinized by the council. In many evangelical circles, and probably including those that we're most familiar with, our efforts to exalt and properly worship Christ as God and as Savior, it may be possible to accidentally de-emphasize the humanity of Christ. And we're sort of reminded every Sunday right after Thanksgiving, right? Oh yeah, the humanity of Christ. The prolific theologian Louis Burkhoff, he wrote this, the splendor of Christ's deity should not be stressed to the extent of obscuring his real humanity. So balance is necessary. And what does Scripture say about his humanity? What was the evidence that the Chalcedonian Council in 451 looked at during those beautiful autumn days when they opened the Word of God together? I want to boil this down to five lines of evidence from Scripture. just going to pop through these quickly because we'll revisit these a lot tomorrow. There are many more than five, but I think this will help round it out. The first line of evidence Jesus himself and others called him a man. That's pretty easy. Jesus himself and others called him a man. John eight, verse forty, Jesus called himself, quote, a man who has told you the truth. Acts two, twenty two, Peter called Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene, a man. Romans five fifteen says that the redeemed person has received, quote, the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. There's a second line of evidence. Jesus clearly emphasizes his humanity. He clearly emphasizes his humanity and he does this in a very simple way. Over 80 times he refers to himself as the son of what? Man. This is a reference to himself being the one presented before God the Father in heaven in Daniel 7, verse 13 that, behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near to him. Jesus never uses another term for himself more than son of man. There's a third line of evidence. He is God manifested in flesh. He's God manifested in flesh. John 1 he's the word made flesh. The, the great Christological confession in 1 Timothy 3.16, the theological high point of the entire book of 1 Timothy begins by calling Christ He who is manifested in the flesh. The Apostle John, in fact, he declared that belief in the humanity of Christ was necessary for genuine orthodoxy. He said in 1 John 4.2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And in all of these cases, the idea, that phrase, the flesh, it speaks of the totality of possessing, of having a human nature. It's not just that Jesus appeared as if he were human, but he really is human, like you and like me. It's a fourth line of evidence. Jesus possesses the basic elements of human nature. He possesses the basic elements of human nature. In other words, he has a material body and a rational soul. Body and soul. Matthew 26, Jesus eats food and then he predicts that his blood will be spilled for the forgiveness of sin. In Luke twenty three forty six, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my, what? Spirit. The human soul of Christ entrusted to God the Father as his physical body died. John 11.33 references his spirit. Hebrews 2.14 references his flesh and blood. He has all the basic elements of human nature. And one more line of evidence, Jesus had normal human experiences. He had normal human experiences. The Gospels give accounts that Jesus had human experiences of birth, physical growth, growth in wisdom, physical exhaustion, sleep, hunger, thirst, anger, sorrow, weeping, compassion, love, joy, temptation, prayer, suffering, and death. And he was the first to experience what all human beings will experience most unto judgment and a few unto life, a bodily physical resurrection in an eternally glorified physical body. Can I put it to you this way? The humanness, the humanity of Jesus involved experiencing, not just encountering the human experience. In everything, he's literally just as human as you, with one exception. The fourth side of the cornerstone of the humanity of Christ, the sinless side. The sinless side. Jesus Christ on earth possessed a natural and moral perfection, sinlessness, and it's not just that he was able to avoid sinning, which he did, but also it was impossible for him to sin because of the unbreakable bond between his human and divine nature in the one person. Let me just rifle through this because the, the proof for his sinlessness is overwhelming. In Luke 1.35, the angel told Mary that when the Holy Spirit comes upon her, she would receive a holy child, the child who is the Son of God. In John 8.46, Jesus challenged his spiritual enemies to name one sin that he had committed. He offered that. Which of you convicts me of sin? None of us would do that. If I invited you to come up here and say to this whole crowd, could somebody name one sin? You'd be taking numbers. We'd be handing out microphones. In John 14.30, Jesus said that Satan, the ruler of this world, has no claim on him. In other words, Satan can't accuse him of anything. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Christ is the one who knew no sin, that He's the very righteousness of God Himself. In Hebrews 4.15, Jesus has been tempted in all things like us, yet without sin. Hebrews 9.14, He's without blemish. 1 Peter 2.22, He is the one who did no sin. 1 John 3.5, in Him there is no sin. Now, someone might have a question about 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Christ was said to be made to be sin. What does that mean? It means that in the judicial sense of taking our place as sinners, he was made to be sin, yet he himself was free of the hereditary sin of Adam. He was free from actual sin. As you read through the Gospels, you would find that Christ never once confesses sin because he had none if his disciples were praying the way they were taught forgive us our sins jesus didn't pray that there's a fifth side to the cornerstone of the humanity of christ the salvation side the salvation side this is going to be covered in detail tomorrow so i'm just going to touch on this for a couple of minutes for the church leaders at Chalcedon, the issue of the hypostatic union of Christ, the two natures in one person had massive implications for the gospel itself. This wasn't just just some sort of dry and dusty theological argument. This had implications for salvation, for eternal destinies. Generally speaking, in the scriptures, the humanity of Christ is presented as vitally connected to salvation, to the need that we have to have our sins forgiven, that it was necessary for Jesus to be human to affect our salvation from sin and to avoid the eternal judgment of God. I think we're probably more familiar with the necessity of the divine nature of Christ in relation to our salvation, that the Savior had to be a sacrifice of infinite value, of eternal value. He had to be someone who could absorb the infinite wrath of God. But why did he have to be human as well? Penalty for sin had to be taken by an actual man involving suffering of his body and soul. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And this man had to experience all the depths of degradation, all the depths of woe to which mankind has fallen short without actually sinning himself. Hebrews 2 beginning in verse 17 said, He had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to those who are tempted. And not only did this actual man have to experience all the depths of degradation that is our human experience, he also had to be sinless. He had to be a perfect sacrifice, otherwise he can't substitute for you. Hebrews 7.26 says, It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled. By the way, he had to be a man to do something he's doing right now, that is to be your mediator. The Apostle Paul said, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. If you'd permit me just a little bit of artistic expression here for a moment. I want to express the salvation side of the cornerstone in this way. That yes, absolutely God is fully glorified in the fact that the Son of God became a man. That does give glory and honor to God. But as we study the humanity of Christ, what you're going to see is that the main thrust the main emphasis concerning the humanity of Christ that the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh quite literally for all time is that he did it for you and he did it for me. That almost every time we encounter the humanity of Christ it's wrapped up inextricably with your salvation. The two always go together. Let me prove this to you. John 14, the word became flesh. That's in the context of verse 12, that as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's your salvation. Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he was obedient to death on the cross. That's your salvation. Hebrews 9.22, he came as a man to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. That's your salvation. When Elizabeth's unborn John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb because the unborn Jesus in Mary's womb was near him Mary praised God in Luke 1 and she said my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit has rejoiced in god my savior that's your salvation Hebrews 7:26 Jesus is the human high priest holy and innocent why verse 25 he is also able to save forever those who draw near to god through him your salvation your salvation your salvation your salvation over and over and over again That everywhere you turn in the countless numbers of texts about the humanity of Christ, you continue to see that his incarnation is an indication of your salvation. It was for you. Today, at this moment, I don't know how tall the man Jesus is. 5'8", 5'9", maybe 5'10". And he will be that way forever so that you will always have a man who is God to whom you can go. See, our study of the humanity of Christ is a reflection of the grace of God for you. It's one more side of the cornerstone of the humanity of Christ. We looked at the story side, the substance side, the scriptural side, the sinless side, the salvation side. I like to save my favorite parts for last. We'll call this one the supernatural side. The supernatural side. For the supernatural side, we take one last journey back to Chalcedon to November 1st, 451. The final day of the conference when the council ratified their detailed statement based in their thorough study of the scriptures. I'm going to quickly read this foundational statement to you again, but this time I have a more specific purpose. You've already heard it once. I want you to listen Listen carefully for the explanation of how one person, in one person, two natures can happen. How is it that the nature of the divine and the nature of a perfect human being are put together in the person of Christ? Listen for the how. Listen for the mechanism, for the means by which God has done this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, Teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us, according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person, in one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Did you catch it? Did you hear the how? Did you hear the mechanism, the means by which the nature of God is found alongside the human nature of a man in one singular person? Did you catch it? You didn't. Why? Because it's not there. The tremendous Impact of the Chalcedonian Creed is that they went no further than Scripture. The Council clearly states the truths of Christ, but they made no attempt to explain the how, the mechanism, the means, but they left the glory of Christ as a mystery with no natural explanation. They presented the incarnation of God as a man, as the great central miracle of all of history. And they let it stand in all its majesty. They let it stand in all its mystery. They let it stand in all its marvelousness. The incarnation is the supreme paradox. God and man in one person. The council affirmed that scripture tells us what Jesus is with no attempt to explain how he became what it is. And you might say, uh-uh, I heard it, the virgin birth. That's How? Okay, explain the virgin birth. Well, that's easy. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary. Okay, explain that. You're going to hit a wall. We can just keep going. You see, the doctrine of the two natures in one person transcends human reason. There's no analogy. There's no metaphor that helps explain it. Human reason cannot find a pathway to this understanding. The dual natures in a single person is accepted solely for one reason the Bible tells me so. And if someone says, that's not enough for me, then that person has a serious problem. Because the incarnation of Christ may only be grasped by faith and faith alone. There is no other method. And in this way, the incarnation of God as a man. The word of God in the flesh points all glory, all honor, all credit, all wonder, all awe goes to God and God alone. By the way, just to make certain that we understand that God has come in the flesh from beginning to end and from the end to the beginning. The Bible has names for the Son of God that are the human names, names indicative of his incarnation we know that God the Son is forever a man because in the future He's still called by these names. Some three dozen human names listed in the Bible. Now, I'm just going to begin at the end of the Bible just to show you that He has called these names forever and ever. And we'll go back to the beginning that Jesus is, beginning at the end, the bright morning star, the root of David the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the Advocate, the Morning Star, the Lawgiver and Judge, the High Priest, the Apostle, the Brother, the Mediator, the Last Adam, the Firstborn, the Leader, Jesus who is the Christ, the Helper, the Teacher, the Lamb of God, the Chosen One, the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Nazarene, the Son of Righteousness, the Desire of all the nations, the Servant, the man of sorrows, the branch, the anointed one, the redeemer on the earth, Shiloh, and going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the woman. And I would be remiss to forget the name quoted by Paul, quoted by Peter, taken from the messianic prophecies of Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28. In fact, we based our whole thought process on this name tonight. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.6, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. The official didn't have any way of knowing it. It wouldn't have been useful for him to know it. He was used of God despite his wickedness, despite his failure. And in the great ironic use of an evil man to proclaim an eternal truth, my call to all of you for the rest of our time together tomorrow and Sunday is found in an exclamation, a statement by none other than Pontius Pilate. When Jesus was brought to be gawked at by the rebellious people wearing a crown of thorns and a mock royalty purple robe, when Jesus was just minutes away from being nailed to the cross for the salvation of all who would believe upon him, Pontius Pilate proclaimed the words that I would call to you to obey as well. He said, behold the man. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now thrilled with our Savior, Jesus. Oh, God. That you would send your Son to be like us is a thought we can't begin to grasp. But because you have told us that it's true, we can begin to believe it. I thank you, Lord, for the truths of Scripture and how overwhelming the doctrine of the humanity of Christ is. He had to be a man to represent us to you, and he had to be God to represent you to us. It is a thrilling thought to think that we will meet Jesus, that he has a face, he has a voice, he has hands, he has wrists with scars in them, he has feet with scars in them, And that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing our Savior's praise than when we first begun. We pray that you would be pleased with our efforts to know our Savior. And we pray, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be exalted in our hearts. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in us to believe the word of God, to trust the truths that we hear and to exalt and glorify our triune God. All for the sake of the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.